So we are in John chapter 8. Could I ask you to turn there? Uh, We're on page 1060 in the Pew Bible. John chapter 8, we're starting with verse 48. So John chapter 8, verse 48, page 1060 in the Pew Bible. Chapter 8 is a tense confrontation between Jesus and the crowds and his opposers in the crowd, his challengers in the crowd. And it becomes perilous. It takes an extremely uh, dicey turn. And uh, so the culmination is what we're looking at here in verses 48 to 59. And may it give us confidence to hear Jesus answer his challengers confidently. Let's read. The Jews answered him, Aren't we right in saying that you are a Samaritan and demon-possessed? I am not possessed by a demon, said Jesus, but I honor my father and you dishonor me. I am not seeking glory for myself, but there is one who seeks it and he is the judge. I tell you the truth, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. At this the Jews exclaimed, now we know that you are demon-possessed. Abraham died, and so did the prophets. Yet you say that if anyone keeps your word, he will never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham? He died, and so did the prophets. Who do you think you are? Jesus replied, if I glorify myself, my glory means nothing. My father, whom you claim as your God, is the one who glorifies me. Though you do not know him, I know him. If I said I did not, I would be a liar like you. But I do know him and keep his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced at the thought of seeing my day. He saw it and was glad. You are not yet 50 years old, the Jews said to him, and you have seen Abraham? I tell you the truth, Jesus answered. Before Abraham was born, I am. At this, they picked up stones to stone him, but Jesus hid himself, slipping away from the temple grounds. Let's bow together and ask God to speak to us through his word. Father, we thank you for your son. We thank you that you've made him known to us, that you've opened our eyes, the eyes of our hearts. And Father, we pray for our friends who are among us today who don't believe in Jesus. And we ask that you would open their eyes, open the eyes of their hearts, that they might see and understand and know Jesus Christ, the living one, the true one, the Savior. And Father, for us who have walked with Christ many years, that you would open our hearts again, anew, to see his glory, to worship him. Be with us now, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. So uh, in just a few days, a 13-year-old boy named Luis, who lives in Greece, New York, received thousands of phone calls, a thousand text messages on his cell phone, uh, many of them with death threats. It all started when he and three of his pals uh, decided to uh, humiliate 
and bully the bus monitor uh, on their school bus and, and uh, videotape it with the cell phone. And then uh, uh, Luis apparently posted it on Facebook. So then one of his Facebook friends, an older kid in high school, saw this, and he was outraged at what he saw, at the behavior that he saw. So he posted it on YouTube, and the thing went viral. As they say, everybody was looking at it. Um, even, even I went and, and looked at it. Um, so it's, you know, several minutes. It goes on for about 10 minutes. You know, I couldn't even sit and watch the whole thing. Of these guys just taunting this lady, insulting her, swearing at her, humiliating her, uh, just saying horrible things about her. You know, at one point, you know, just, just the, the kind of, you know, childish taunting these kids do. Their, their bodies are big enough to do trouble, but their brains aren't yet caught up with that. And so they just see what they can get away with. And uh, so one of them says, you know, uh, no, you don't live with anybody because everybody killed, all your relatives killed themselves because they didn't want to live with you. And the fact is, you know, that hurt her more than anything else because her son had killed himself 10 years before. And so she's just trying to ignore all this stuff that's going on. And, you know, finally she just breaks down in tears. Uh, she's reduced to tears by all this. So people saw this. They saw the disgrace. They saw the insults online. And they, and they reacted. They were outraged. And so all the death threats and, and the angry postings on YouTube and all the uh, the profanity that people put on there, they're so angry at, that there could be kids like this, that they would do things like this. And then, of course, the cynicism, well, that's just how everybody is. Outrage and sympathy. Uh, you know, someone began to raise money, and I guess there's like $670,000 that was raised just to, as a gesture to, you know, do something kind for this poor lady so that she could maybe get out of that Situation. Well, now she has enough to retire on, um, which, which is nice. Um, so people see such a confrontation. People see such humiliation. They see this disgrace and the insult and the dishonor, and they react. And so when we see, like in this passage, the, the insults and the attacks on the Lord Jesus Christ, we also react. And, you know, some people... Uh, today, still, they, they delight to see it. Some people, most people are, are annoyed, they're angered, they feel bad about it, they're offended by it. Some people see this interaction and they're filled with admiration for Jesus. But I hope that we as Jesus' disciples, as we see this interaction, will be moved to worship, to worship the Son of God. Because um, in the, the moment when Jesus bears disgrace, his disciples see his glory. Uh, this, this passage is, is one of these intersections of, of honor and shame, of disgrace and majesty. And so this passage, it's like a little mini foretaste or foreshadow or preview of the great focus of John's gospel, which is the cross. And so this kind of sets the pattern. It sets the tone. This is where John's gospel is going. 
This is what happens in Jerusalem. Even at the beginning of chapter 7, when they were getting ready for this trip down to Jerusalem, they were afraid that Jesus is going to end up getting killed. But Jesus was confident and said, you know, his hour is set, and it isn't yet, and he's going. Um, So this moment comes when they're insulting and they're attacking and they're degrading Jesus, and that's the moment in which Jesus is lifted up and honored and worshipped and glorified. It's that amazing thing about the cross that God's glory is most clearly seen in the humiliation of his son. Well, um, this, is, this is the theme of the cross. It's, that, uh, it's the moment when Jesus is glorified, and that's what, what Jesus calls it in the Gospel of John. In John chapter 12, verse 23, Jesus says, The hour for the Son of Man to be glorified has come. This is the hour for the Son of Man to be glorified. He's talking about the cross. And even right here in chapter 8, he refers to the cross and glory together. If you look in chapter 8, verse 28, um, Jesus says, so, uh, so Jesus said, when you have lifted up the Son of Man, a reference to his crucifixion, to his death in shame and ignominy, then you will know that I am, that I am. And so this passage that we're coming to today, those two words, I am, are the two words that we all remember when we remember this passage, that Jesus said, I am, which is like the name of God, Jesus claiming to be God. But there it is in verse 28. When you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am. His glory, his majesty as God in the flesh will be then known. And you know, the, the, the identity of Jesus during his life on earth was always kept veiled. It was always kept hidden. Just a few places like this where it sort of jumps out, like in this passage we're looking at. But usually it's kept hidden. It's kept veiled until after he has been put to shame until after the cross is lifted up because it's only in the cross where shame is put forward that the glory of God can be seen and people can recognize God's grace in salvation. So when Jesus bears disgrace, his disciples see glory. Let's just look through the passage and see the, uh, the disgrace and see the glory. And um, so we'll we'll start um, we'll start back um, back in verse forty six because Jesus has been uh, throughout uh, this conversation throughout chapter eight Jesus has been taking his hearers to task he's been uh, telling the crowds about who he is and they miss it they don't get it and so most of the interaction through chapter eight is Jesus with the initiative Jesus pursuing these people and asking them one question after another, telling them one thing after another. And the things that they say back to him are things like, um, who are you? And where will he go? And where is your father? So they're, they're just kind of clueless. And finally, 
uh, things start to get a little bit more tense when he says, you're actually children of the devil. Uh, you know, Jesus is just after them. So Jesus is really the, the, uh, the instigator here, and he's, uh, he's challenging the crowd. And so then they start to say some defensive things. Abraham is our father. God is our father. And uh, finally, Jesus gives them a challenge here in verse 46. He says, can any of you prove me guilty of sin? If I'm telling the truth, why don't you believe me? So here it is. Either Jesus is telling the truth or he's a liar. Don't just muddle around in the gray areas. Which is it going to be? If he's telling the truth, believe him. And if he's not, prove it. Why do you reject him? Why do you believe he's not telling the truth? So he's challenging them. Prove me guilty of sin or believe me. One or the other. Which is it going to be? And so they oblige him. Verse 48. Okay, are we not right in saying that you are demon-possessed? You are Samaritan and demon-possessed. So here are their... their, uh, accusations against Jesus, a Samaritan and demon-possessed. So a Samaritan, that's a pretty heavy accusation. Basically, it's just probably just an insult. Uh, Samaritan means it's a race. It's a race of people. So it's kind of a racial slur. And uh, Jesus is from the north. The Samaritans are from the north. And so there's a little bit of plausibility. But Jesus is not a Samaritan. We read back in chapter 4, he went to Samaria And uh, they knew he was a Jew. And uh, we read just back in chapter 7, these people all said he's from Galilee. They know he's a Galilean. He's not a Samaritan. So the word Samaritan is really basically an insult. It means he's a mongrel. It means he's a traitor. It means he's a heretic. So they're just insulting him. So what I want us to see then in Jesus' response, I want us to see his glory in his humility. Just looking at verse 49 and 50. To see Jesus' glory as he bears disgrace. And to see his glory in his humility. In his humble response to their attacks. So Jesus answers them. First by ignoring the insult. They call him a Samaritan. He leaves it alone. And then he calmly denies the other part of the charge, that he is demon-possessed. So his answer is, I am not possessed by a demon, said Jesus. He calmly denies it. So Jesus answers gently. And uh, then another thing comes out about Jesus here in verse 49. First, he answers gently. I'm not possessed by a demon, But I honor my father. Jesus honors his father. That's what he does. Jesus is a faithful servant to his father. Always faithfully obeying his delight and his mission is to carry out his father's will. Jesus is humble. And so we see his Glory shining out as he's insulted. He answers gently, 
and he is a humble servant of his father. So I honor my father, and you dishonor me. It's a plain fact. That's what they're doing. Uh, It's a little dangerous to dishonor the one who is honoring God because it's sort of like uh, electricity conducts. You dishonor the one who honors God, and you're dishonoring God. Um, But you dishonor me, he says. He states the fact plainly. This is what Jesus signed up for. This is what Jesus came for, to be dishonored. And he bears it. He faces it. He accepts it. Look at the one from heaven who comes down and faces and accepts all this disgrace that we pour upon him, that we heap on his back. So he exposes himself to dishonor. He answers gently. He honors God. He exposes himself to dishonor. And then in verse 50, he waits. He humbly waits. So this is what verse 50 says. I am not seeking glory for myself, but there is one who seeks it, and he is the judge. I am not seeking my glory. So he's waiting for God to bring it about in his own time. Jesus is humble. So we, we look at Jesus in this situation and we're, we're amazed at his humility. What a, what a patient, lowly, humble Savior. You know, he comes among people like us with all our connivings, with all our difficulties, with all our, our challenges, with all our stubbornness, with our, our blind eyes and our hard hearts, and he patiently puts up with us. And he patiently bears with us. And he stays with us. And he keeps working with us. What, what a humble, humble Savior. He's just the kind of Savior we need. Someone who ignores the insults that we give him. We need a Savior who perfectly honors God. This is the kind of Savior we need because we've dishonored God. We need someone who can come in And be the one who honors the Father. Because we've dishonored him so much. We need him to come and honor the Father in our place. We need a Savior like this who is patient. And a Savior who reaches down. You know, the model of greatness in Christianity is not reaching up. But it's reaching down. And this is what Jesus does. He reaches down to us. Um, Chuck Colson passed away recently. He was uh, great, greatly loved, uh, greatly admired for, uh, you know, tremendous work that he did. He wasn't always uh, admired and loved. Actually, he was uh, feared and loathed and respected. Uh, he was, uh, you know, you, you probably know he was one of, he was Richard Nixon's hitman. He was uh, the, the White House legal counsel during the Nixon administration. So he was the guy who was ruthless in getting things done. That's what he says about himself. Um, ruthless in getting things done for Nixon. 
This eventually led to his conviction for obstruction of justice after the Watergate break-in. Among other infamous acts, he leaked information from confidential FBI files on on anti-war activist Daniel Ellsberg of the Pentagon Papers fame. And he fulminated about firebombing the liberal Brookings Institution. This was uh, quite a mover and shaker. Um, He was Nixon's once powerful hatchet man. He was the first Watergate figure to become an incarcerated felon. But then he found Christ. He wrote the book Born Again, and he founded Prison Fellowship, which has influenced and touched people you know, around us. Uh, we just prayed this morning for Rich Chamberlain. He's working together with Danny Kroos uh, down at the Plymouth House of Corrections. Uh, Danny met Christ as an inmate at uh, Plymouth House of Correction, where he, where he came to Christ, where his, his life was changed, where he was influenced by the ministry of Chuck Colson. And when Danny graduated from Plymouth House of Corrections, he went to Bible college under a Chuck Colson scholarship and became a prison chaplain. So um, this is what uh, Norman Carlson, the, the retired director of uh, Federal Bureau of Prisons, said about Chuck Colson at his death. Chuck was a truly brilliant visionary, a man who understood human frailties and wanted to bring Christ's love and compassion to the lives of the downtrodden. His life exemplified the admonition for all of us contained in Micah 6. Do justice, love mercy, and walk humbly with your God. So he was loved for his downreach. He bore the image of Christ because of his downreach. And uh, that's the image that we need to bear. That's the model that we also need to follow. It's the model and the image of Christ in the cross. So the first thing that we see in this passage, in this conflict, in this confrontation, is that Jesus is humble. And we see his glory in his humility. And the second thing we see as we move ahead is we see Jesus' compassion. We see his glory in his compassion. He has compassion for his hearers. He has compassion for his enemies. So Jesus cares about and he feels for these people who are attacking him and insulting him. So look in verse 50 again. So John eight fifty. I'm not seeking glory for myself, but there is one who seeks it, and he is the judge. Again, it's, it's dangerous to mess with Jesus frivolously because you're messing with God's messenger. And re, uh, insulting the messenger is tantamount to insulting the one who sent him. So if we insult God's son, we're insulting God. And so Jesus warns them about this out of compassion because he cares about them because they're getting themselves into more trouble by insulting him. So he warns them that there is a judge who judges the one who insults Jesus. So then Jesus' compassion moves him to warn, and Jesus' compassion 
moves him to welcome. Look at verse 51. He welcomes uh, his hearers to salvation. I tell you the truth. If anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. So Jesus gives this wonderful invitation. So we've, we, there have been a number of, of claims like this, a number of invitations like this through, through the, the, the eighth chapter of John. Jesus has said, I am the light of the world. Whoever believes in me will never walk in darkness. Um, he said uh, in John chapter 8, verse 30, uh, 31, if you hold to my teaching, you are really my disciples, then you will know the truth, and the truth will make you free. So he's giving these invitations. And so here's the invitation. I tell the truth. I tell you the truth. He says it with assurance because we need assurance. We need assurance of salvation. And so Jesus speaks to us, amen, amen to this promise I'm going to give you, this invitation I'm going to give you. And then he says, if anyone, if anyone, look at his generosity. Moved by compassion, he's generous. Anyone, even all of these people who are insulting him right now, if anyone keeps my word, he came and he spoke. He didn't just stay in heaven, but his compassion moved him to come and to give his word to us that we might be able to hear and believe and keep his word. And he says, I tell you the truth, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. He will never see death. His compassion keeps him faithful. He will never let his disciple go. The one who holds on to him, he will never abandon to death. He keeps them. What a wonderful invitation. And all of this is purchased by his own blood, by his own death on the cross. And here he offers it to these people who are hearing, to these people who are despising him, to these people who are hating him. He's inviting them at his own expense to never taste death. What wonderful compassion. So the humble Savior who is compassionate. And this is the kind of Savior we need because our hearts are hard. We are so ready to punish. We are so ready to wring the last penny that our neighbor owes us because we're angry and we want our debts repaid. If someone owes us honor, we want to get it by all means. If someone owes us money, well, you better believe we're going to go after it. That's what we're like. And there's no forgiveness. I remember when I lived in Kenya, I used to hear about the vendettas among the tribes, the different tribes living not far from our area. And so there would be so many killed on the one side uh, and then, you know, the, these people wouldn't put up with that, so they would go back and kill way, way more on the other side to level the score, you know, to make, it, make things even. 
Well, of course, that doesn't make things even. Now the other side is totally outraged, and so they come and they attack back, and this back and forth sort of unforgiveness uh, that would take place uh, way up in these uh, remote rural areas. I, I have to confess, actually, um, you know, it was, it was mostly among the Muslim tribes. The, the Christian tribes, they had that message of the cross. They had that message of forgiveness. And, and s- some of these things would take place there, too. People are people, and sin is sin. But they, they had that other way of thinking about suffering and seeing the glory of God in it. They could accept suffering and not always pay back. Um, we need such a compassionate Savior because our hearts are so hard. When we feel mistreated, it makes anger seem good. It seems like the right thing to do. But when Jesus is mistreated, look how he responds. Matthew 5, 44, Jesus teaches us, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. And that's what he teaches, but he puts it into action at the appropriate moment. So in uh, Luke twenty three thirty four, at his crucifixion, as he's being nailed to the cross, we read that he says, Father, forgive them. They know not what they're doing. And then uh, in, in Acts chapter seven sixty, the same pattern. Here is Stephen, the first martyr, the first Christian preacher who is put to death for preaching the good news of Jesus Christ. And as he's being stoned to death, just before he falls asleep and dies, he cries out, Oh, Father, do not hold this sin against them. This is the pattern of compassion for enemies. This is the model which we're called to follow. This is what we're called to emulate. And so Peter teaches the same thing. Hebrews chapter, I mean, uh, 1 Peter chapter 2, if you'll just listen. 1 Peter chapter 2, starting with verse 18. Slaves, this could also, I suppose, in some, some uh, it, it attenuated way, it could apply to us as employees, um, maybe even family members. Slaves, Submit yourselves to your masters with all respect, not only to those who are good and considerate, but also to those who are harsh. For it is commendable if a man bears up under the pain of unjust suffering because he is conscious of God. But how is it to your credit if you receive a beating for doing wrong and endure it? But if you suffer for doing good and you endure it, this is commendable before God. To this you were called because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. He committed no sin and no deceit was found in his mouth. When they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. So that's the model that we're to live by. It's radical to love your enemies. And that's what we're called to do, to pray for those who persecute us. 
So Jesus' glory is seen in his humility. He's humble in, in this confrontation. And then Jesus' compassion shows his glory. His glory is seen in his compassion. He's compassionate in this confrontation. And then Jesus' glory is seen in his answer. Now he's going to answer their charges, answer their questions. And so we're just going to go through verses um, 52 through, through 59 here and just, uh, just kind of go through all of this and look at Jesus' answers. There, there are more questions that will come. So let's just work through, work through these verses and, um, uh, and see how Jesus answers and how his glory then shines through. The glory of Christ remains veiled until this time of insult and humiliation. That is the appropriate moment for his glory to be made known. That is the time and the place where where God makes his glory known. God chooses the foolishness of the cross because we look for wisdom and we look for pride. We think it should be a straight line to heaven, but God crosses it with shame, humiliation, with the cross. And that's where we really see the glory of God revealed most clearly. So, verse 52, um, they say, Now we know you're demon-possessed. Abraham died, and so did the prophets. Yet you say that if anyone keeps your word, he will never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham? He died, and so did the prophets. Who do you think you are? So they have two questions for him. Uh, first of all, they have some, the, the accusations they want to repeat. You're demon-possessed. And they're, they're basically saying you're proud, and you're raving, and, and you're evil. You're saying evil nonsense. Because, obviously, Abraham died. So they're thinking of physical death. This is what always happens when Jesus is teaching. People are getting his teaching and they're understanding it in in worldly terms when he's speaking in spiritual terms. So they understand Jesus' death, uh, that Jesus is saying that you will not die, not of being escaped from God's judgment, which they believed in. They believed in the afterlife. They had the categories to understand this. But they interpreted his words very woodenly and literally because they didn't want to understand. They didn't want to receive. So they said, aha, you're saying that if someone believes your word, he will never die. Well, Abraham died. So are you claiming that you're greater than Abraham? So they're interpreting it as literal physical death. So their first question, are you greater than Abraham? Their second question, who do you think you are? And literally, it's interesting the way this is put literally, if you look in some of the other translations, who do you make yourself to be? Who are you making yourself out to be? So you're styling yourself as somebody. Who are you trying to come across as? What kind of airs are you putting on? That's kind of what the question is getting at. What is this... Uh, this impression you're trying to give of who you are. Who do you make yourself to be? So question one, are you greater than Abraham? Question two, 
who you're trying to make yourself out to be. So Jesus answers question two first, and then he'll get around to question one. So Jesus answers, who are you making yourself out to be? And uh, in verse 54, Jesus says, God glorifies me. What verse 54 says is, um, Jesus replied, if I glorify myself, my glory means nothing. My Father, whom you claim as your God, is the one who glorifies me. I'm not making myself out to be anything. God is at work in me. And God is giving me my words and my signs. And you see the signs and you hear the words. They come from God. And what don't you get? So he just puts himself right in front of their eyes, right in front of their faces with the miraculous signs. And they need to accept. They need to see. They need to believe and receive. But uh, they don't. They twist it. So his first answer, I'm not making myself out to be anything. I am who I am. I am God's son, and I am speaking the words of God and doing the works of God. So that's the, the answer to the second question, who do you make yourself out to be? And then he stops for a second and challenges them again with the challenge. Now, um, verse uh, 55 um, Though you do not know him, uh, uh, is God who glorifies me. Though you do not know him, I know him. If I said I did not, I would be a liar like you. But I do know him and keep his word. So there's the challenge once again. You guys, you don't know what you're talking about, and you're lying. I know God, you don't. So come to me. If you know God, come to me. If you don't know God, admit it. Uh, so he's just giving them that challenge, uh, calling them out. Then he gets around to answering their first question. Um, are you greater than our father Abraham? So here's the answer, verse 56. Your father Abraham rejoiced at the thought of seeing my day. He saw it and was glad. I am Abraham's joy and delight. I am what Abraham longed for. I am what Abraham lived for. I am Abraham's hope. For you guys, it's the other way around. Abraham is your hope. You guys rely on Abraham. I don't rely on Abraham. Abraham relies on me. And so, yeah, his glory is starting to come out as they, as they insult him. No, I am Abraham's hope. So, it's, it's a little bit puzzling here. There's a question, okay, when was it that uh, Abraham saw Jesus' day and rejoiced? Okay, so there's all the debate. It could be it was some point during Abraham's life. You know, Abraham saw visions. God told him things about the future. Uh, or maybe it was the time he rejoiced when he had a son and he named him Laughter, Isaac. Uh, maybe that's the time. And... Uh, Maybe it's like from heaven, at the time that Jesus was born, Abraham was observing and Abraham got to see Jesus' day that way. Um, it would be so great if, if uh, one of the disciples had just asked Jesus that question later on and then someone had written down for us Jesus' answer and we could know 
But since that didn't happen, I can't tell you exactly when Abraham saw Jesus' joy, uh, saw Jesus and, and was glad. So we'll just pass over that. Uh, we'll be content. There's plenty here for us to, to understand and receive. So, um, so now he's answered their questions. I'm not making myself out to be anything. I'm God's son. And uh, no, I, I'm not. I, 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 actually, I am greater than Abraham. Uh, Abraham, I don't depend on Abraham. Abraham depends on me. I am much, much greater than Abraham. So, uh, so now they're really offended. Um, so here's what they latch on to. You mean you saw Abraham? Like Abraham saw your day. In other words, you were living at the time that Abraham was alive, and you're that old, but you're only about, I mean, you're not even 50 years old. What, what do you mean Abraham saw your day? Abraham lived a long, 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 long time ago. You're crazy. You're nuts. So, uh, you know, more insults, you know, more, more gasoline on the fire. Um, so Jesus answers. That was um, verse 57. Jesus answers uh, verse 58. And this is the verse that we all remember from this passage. I tell you the truth, Jesus answered. Before Abraham was born... I am. So, I am. It's, it's the name of God from the Old Testament. Uh, this, is, this is God's self-designation. I am who I am. And uh, those great verses in, in Isaiah, Isaiah 41.4, I am the Lord with the first and with the last. Yes, before Abraham was born, I am. It's just the kind of thing that, that you read in Isaiah so Jesus uses that. It's, it's awkward construction, even in the original language. Even in, in, in the translation, it's awkward. Before Abraham was born, I am. You're what? I am. What? 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 I am. You know, just am. It is to be, to exist. And so, you know, it... it it would have been easier, it would be more grammatical to say, before Abraham was born, I was. I was there, or something like that. But to say, before Abraham was born, I am, it, it, it immediately triggers everyone to know that he's claiming to be deity. Because the, it's, it's not quite perfect grammar, but it fits into a literary context that kind of usage has been used before, and it's the claim to be God. Jesus' glory shines out in this context of the insults. So, this is the time that Jesus' word comes out so clearly, and he shows himself to be who he is. And so, verse 59, they've given him three insults. They've called him Samaritan and demon-possessed. They've said that uh, he's surely possessed by a demon because uh, he's claiming to be greater than Abraham. Who do you make so out to be? And now they say you're, you're nuts because you can't have been alive since Abraham's day. And now the fourth attack, they pick up stones. Verse 59. And then Jesus' response, his answer, he leaves. 
So in the NIV, which we're reading, again, uh, the translation is, is made a little bit um, um, colorful. Um, so it, it says that he, he, he hid himself slipping away from the temple grounds. The verb isn't really slipping away, which is a, that suggests hiding and sneaking. The verb is he departed. He left. He went out. Jesus went out of the temple. And perhaps what we're supposed to think of is the time when God went out of the temple. The vision in the book of Ezekiel, chapter 10, God departs. God leaves Israel. This has cut it. And uh, so the insults, the attacks, they have finally brought it to the point when the relationship is broken. And this is a turning point in the Gospel of John. Next we come to uh, the miracle of the, uh, the, uh, the healing of the blind man. And uh, there's more of, an, of, a, of a controversial negative tone uh, as we go ahead. So this is the kind of Savior we need, a Savior who's compassionate, a Savior who's humble, and a Savior who is glorious. A glorious Savior is able to approach God. A glorious Savior is able to approach God for me. He's able to approach God on our behalf. Jesus doesn't style himself to be Savior. God sends him. Jesus doesn't rely on Abraham. Abraham relies on him. Jesus doesn't measure his lifetime by others' lifetimes. All people are measured by him. Jesus is not judged and ejected from the temple. Jesus departs. This is the kind of triumphant Savior we want. Um, uh, we, we, we're... We're too much like Peter. When Jesus starts talking about the cross, we start taking him aside and saying, no, 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 no. It's not going to happen this way. Let me explain to you, Jesus. It's not going to be like this. You're not going to go to the cross. No, 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 no. Where did you get that idea anyway? No. Here's what's going to happen. You're going to go in a straight line. Things are going to go up and up, and the kingdom is going to be built around you. Things are going to get better and better every day, and that's how it's going to be. We want a straight line to triumph and victory. But Jesus is heading for the cross. Jesus' glory will be seen through the cross. His glory will be announced and proclaimed uh, through the cross. His resurrection will come in answer to the cross. We like the triumphal entry. We, we like the crowds shouting Hosanna and welcoming the Son of God. Uh, we want the top seats in his kingdom. While he's busy talking about how he's going to be crucified, we're busy asking him if we can't get a higher seat and a better place. We want the straight line to glory. But Jesus is the kind of Savior who takes the path of the cross. God's glory shines brightest in the cross. This is why we reach out in humble love instead of arguments. When we talk with our loved ones, with our friends, and we want them to know the Savior, instead of just trying to argue them to it, we love them. We display the humility. We display the compassion. It isn't just a strategy. 
It's because this is who we are. This is who Jesus is. This is reality, is that we're saved by his blood. And we have compassion on others who are just like us and need the Savior just as we do. This is why we persevere in a bad, painful marriage, a sad relationship, because through that disgrace, through that pain, through that suffering, God's glory is seen. It's shown. It's made visible. We follow the path of the cross. The cross is not only for Jesus, but it's also for me. And I take it up and walk after him and go in his way. The cross is my life, not only his. This is why the broker prays with the garbage collector. This is why diamonds and pearls praise with tattoos and piercings. Because the cross is the leveler. Because no one is higher or better in the view of the cross. But in the perspective of heaven, all the attainments of this world and this life amount to very, very little. And this is why we pray for the persecuted church. Jesus will answer those who attack his messengers, those who destroy his people. He will respond in humility, in compassion, and in glory sooner or later. Sometimes it's much, much later, and we feel it's too late. Oh, that it would be sooner so that people could see and believe and be saved. Let's pray. Father, be with us. Strengthen us by your spirit. Renew our hearts by your word. Encourage us to walk in the way of the cross. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.